We're happy to have this episode sponsored by Real Mushrooms. You probably already know about some of the great benefits of adding mushrooms to your diet, like better sleep, greater mental clarity, and a stronger immune system, but not all mushroom products are equal. Real Mushrooms is the real deal. Many mushroom companies harvest the mushroom and the grain it's growing on. Real Mushrooms products contain no grains or starch fillers. They're organic, cultivated naturally, and third-party verified for beta-glucans, the compound that makes them so valuable as a supplement. They even have a science and medical team of doctors who ensure that Real Mushrooms meets the highest standards. What I personally love is how informative their website is. Have questions about what mushroom is right for you? They have a robust blog with articles ranging from women's health to what mushrooms are most beneficial to your pet. Want to boost your immune system? Have better sleep and feel more calm? Grab the link in the show notes and get 25% off of your first order. Curiously enough, acupuncture is not just sticking needles into people. It's part of a coherent and observation-based medicine that experienced practitioners of the art have handed down over the centuries. I'm Michael Max, your host and guide of Everyday Acupuncture. Listen in as we explore how you can apply the principles of this ancient medicine in your everyday life. Hi, I'm Michael Max. I'm your host of Everyday Acupuncture. Welcome to the show today. I'm really pleased to have with me a good friend of mine, David Lerner. He's out in Washington State. David's been practicing Chinese medicine for 20 some odd years now. He's a diplomat in acupuncture, Chinese herbal medicine. He's also got a degree in comprehensive nutrition. He studied in China. He's been all over the place with this stuff, and uh, he's currently assisting Dr. Evan Hirsch in uh, practicing functional medicine in Olympia, Washington. David, so happy to have you on the show, man. Thank you. It's great to be here, Michael, and it's nice to be here with you. Cool. I just want to mention that today's show is about the uh, prevention of cancer and the prevention of relapse of cancer. So we're going to be uh, getting your take on this. Tell us a little bit about what functional medicine is. Functional medicine, Michael, is a much more holistic, integrative model of medicine compared to allopathic medicine as we know it. Allopathic medicine is fantastic, as we know, for things like when you need surgery or when you break a bone. Do a great job. I'm, I'm glad they're there. I'm glad we have medicines. I'm glad we have uh, antibiotics for times when we need it. Allopathic medicine's not all that great at times when we have a... Sorry, you hear my dog's barking in the background there. Someone came to the door. Sorry. That's okay. It's a live show. <laughs> I did my best. But allopathic's not that great with chronic degenerative diseases. You know, it's more of a, if it ain't broke, don't fix it sort of model. And I'd say functional medicine is quite different in that perspective. I think that's the crux of the difference. Functional medicine is much more based on how do we reach optimal levels of health before there's a problem. And typically how we do that is by looking at a lot of lab analysis. So we do a much more proactive lab testing than conventional medical practices do to kind of look under the hood a bit more and say, hey, let's kind of put a flashlight out here and see if there's any problems lurking before we actually have a problem. And that's a big part of how we work with folks who have a high risk of getting cancer or folks who have had a, a cancer history. So we want to talk a little bit today 
about preventing cancer. I mean, needless to say, cancer is a big issue. Seems like there's more and more of it in the in the so-called war on cancer that they started up in the 70s. Hasn't really changed the rates of cancer that much, has it? Hasn't, yeah. No, no. So what does functional medicine have to bring to us with this? Well, let me start by saying that none of us are immune to getting cancer. So there's a lot of things we can do to stack the deck in our favor to minimize the chances of our getting cancer, minimize the chances of getting a, a recurrence. And I'm going to bring those two together a lot because I think they're pretty similar. The same sort of direction we go in terms of preventing cancer is the same direction we go for folks who have a high risk of recurrence. You know, from a functional medicine perspective, we're, we're, we're getting the flashlight out and we're looking deeply and saying, you know, cancer doesn't just occur, you know, by itself. Sure, we've got mutated cancer cells that hyperproliferate and don't die and are out of control and are aberrant cells. But what's going on, you know, our interest is really what's going on in the microenvironment, what we call the terrain. And we're doing kind of terrain management. So you're like a landscape designer. That's the analogy I love, the garden really? analogy. And I, and, and I use this all the time with patients where I say that, you know, when you're undergoing cancer care, the oncologist's job is to pull the weeds. You know, they're using really uh, aggressive medications that in some cases are very, very necessary and useful and save people's lives. And I never recommend people don't use conventional care when they have cancer, but they're getting out there and they're killing the cancer. They're not really working on the microenvironment, the terrain. And more and more research is coming out right now saying that, hey, this we might be missing a huge thing right here, the microenvironment. And that's where we work. So from the garden perspective, we're taking care of the soil. We're fertilizing the soil with the right nutrients and making sure that that soil is in as optimal shape as it can be to encourage healthy growth and discourage abnormal growth. Right. So if I understand this, what you're saying is that like any ecosystem, if it's healthy and in balance, there's not much space for the weeds to grow. You got it. Well, this is the basic ideas behind Chinese medicine as well, oddly enough. <laughs> right. Right. <laughs> yeah. Of course, with Chinese medicine, we take a slightly different look. It sounds like you're really getting a, a I should say, more granular view of what's going on in the human body by using various tests and um, looking at blood and fluids and things of that nature. Is that correct? Exactly. And, and specifically, the biggies that we're looking at as we're looking at markers for inflammation, we're looking at markers for hypercoagulation or how thick the blood is. Cancer likes thick blood because it uses really? that as a... Yeah. yeah that like, is fascinating because, you know, in Chinese medicine, we always say that stagnant blood is one of the things that brings on cancer. That's right. And from a functional medicine perspective, the big nutraceutical that we use when we have hypercoagulation is uh, lumbrokinase, which is an extract from earthworm, also known as D-long. And, and they got that data from looking at research in China using D-long by itself. So I actually think D-long or, or, or earthworm would be effective in helping to bring down coagulation markers, but they've they've taken out a specific extract from it called lumbrokinase, and it's extremely effective at kind of lowering elevated fibrin levels and other coagulation markers in the blood. And there's a very very strong link in the medical literature that cancer cells will try to upregulate coagulation factors such as fibrinogen when they're trying to grow. Really clear. That's fascinating. Yeah. So you were saying we you're looking at inflammation. Yep. <laughs> thickness of the blood. What else are you looking into? Hormonal health. We're looking at typically adrenal health, so cortisol, DHEA. We're looking at sex hormones, estrogen, testosterone, progesterone. And what do you and what are you looking for with those sex hormones? Ideally that they're all in balance. So, 
you know, we know, for instance, that breast cancer is a really good example. The majority of breast cancers are estrogen dependent. And we know that if we use uh, estrogen modulating or blocking medications, it's going to decrease those women's chances, A, of getting breast cancer. That study was actually just in the, in the front page of the paper last week. But also for women who've had breast cancer, to put them on estrogen modulating medication will lower their risk of getting cancer. We kind of look a little deeper than that. I, I suspect that in the next 10, 15, 20 years, we're going to realize that this concept of estrogen bad is off and there's something deeper underneath. So we use a pretty sophisticated urine test that not only looks at estrogen levels, and if someone has elevated estrogen levels, that's going to get my attention and we're going to put protocols in place to balance that out and balance that particularly with progesterone because those two antagonize each other. But we're also looking at what are called downstream metabolites of estrogen, what's called the 2-hydroxyestrone and the 16-hydroxyestrone and the 4-hydroxyestrone. And we have some data that shows that if there's a low ratio of the 2 to 16-hydroxyestrone, that's potentially carcinogenic. We also have some really clear data that if women have elevated levels of the 4-hydroxyestrone, that that's really carcinogenic. And there are protocols we can put into place to amend those things. Those are the sort of things, if someone comes to me and says, I have a big family history of breast cancer, I'm concerned about getting breast cancer, one of the first tests I'm going to want to run is this uh, urine complete hormones test because I want to look at your estrogen levels and look at the downstream metabolites, get that stuff all dialed in and in place. And that's really, if those are out of balance, you're at much higher risk of getting cancer. And I think we can change that before there's a diagnosis. And this kind of stuff is not in the usual allopathic way of looking at cancer, is it? No, the large majority of allopathic physicians don't look at downstream metabolites of estrogen. They're just looking at, to the best of my knowledge, they're just looking at estradiol, sometimes estrone, which is called E1 and E2, and possibly progesterone as well. And oftentimes, I don't think the conventional community looks at those unless there's a problem as well. So I don't think the concept of estrogen dominance, which we talk about a lot in functional medicine and integrative medicine, I don't think that's something that's brought up a lot in allopathic circles. What do people do about this if they've got this kind of a marker? Maybe they're not sick. Maybe their inflammation's a bit high. Maybe they've got some of these downstream markers. What do you do? You know, depending on what we see, we come up with a plan. You know, when someone comes into the office, the first time they come in, we do a pretty large swath of tests and then do some additional tests to customize it to what their symptoms are and what their genetic history might look like and what their family history might look like and, you know, look for areas that may be problematic for them. And based on the results we get back, we kind of put it all together and say, you know, this is where you're healthy and this is where you're out of balance. And we are going to put a plan together using things like diet, using things like lifestyle changes, using things like exercise, using things like uh, stress management, using things like botanicals, nutraceuticals. Right. So this is everyday stuff people can do for themselves. Everyday stuff people can do for themselves. And sometimes we use pharmaceuticals. You know, if I see somebody with a raging high uh, glucose level and insulin level and pro-insulin level when I'm working with Dr. Hirsch, you know, every day they're running around like that is every day they're doing major damage to their health. And we don't want to mess around. So we put those people on metformin and say, hey, you don't have to be on this for life, but we got to get this under control ASAP. Because you got to get the inflammation out of the system. That's right. We got to, yeah. well, yeah. You're right. And, and inflammation is kind of goes concurrently with all these degenerative diseases like hyperinsulinemia and hyperglycemia. Yes. Talk to us a little bit about inflammation, how it occurs. More importantly, what our listeners can do, you know, in their everyday life, diet, habits, whatever, to 
get rid of it. I'm sure their joints would feel better. Right. So uh, inflammation is really interesting. You know, we, we hear about the itises, arthritis and the like, which means uh, inflammation of the joints. And that's obvious inflammation. We also know that inflammation happens after an injury. That's normal inflammation. But there's an abnormal inflammation as well, which is a chronic, typically a chronic low-grade inflammation. For folks who have autoimmune disease, it's not so low-grade. Someone who's got rheumatoid arthritis has raging inflammation in their joints. So it's not low-grade. But most of the folks that, that, that we see who have inflammatory issues it's kind of a low grade simmering. And, you know, we know that inflammation is associated with just about all degenerative diseases. Pretty much, I'd say 80 to 90% of obese patients that we test will come back with an elevated C-reactive protein, which is a marker that tells us, gives us insight into systemic inflammation in the body. It doesn't tell us where the inflammation is, but it tells us they're inflamed. Yep, and they're on fire. And I see that in, in almost all my obese patients. So we don't know which comes first, but it appears to ride with cancer. It appears to ride with heart disease, certainly diabetes. They're all tied in. So when we see markers of inflammation elevated, and those markers would be a, a, a highly sensitive CRP, which anyone has access to through any labs. And in my opinion, most medical professionals should be running that regularly on their patients before there's a problem. We use a, a lab called a NutriVal from Genova Diagnostics, which is a specialty lab, but we can get glutathione levels, which is considered a master antioxidant, really important for inflammation. We can get CoQ10 levels. We can get lipid peroxidase levels, which is a type of uh, free radical that goes hand in hand with inflammation. You guys are like the master sleuthers of the blood, aren't you? We, we, <laughs> it is our passion. We are on a mission. It's our passion. We love what we do and it's, it's actually quite fun. And, you know, we work really hard at it and it's challenging too, you know, cases yeah. aren't easy and we're always no. learning, but I'm of the opinion that more information is better. Um, some people disagree with me they say you, you, if you do too much, you'll confuse the picture and, and just confuse yourself. And that hasn't been my experience. I'm a big believer, as, as is Dr. Hirsch, who I, who I work with, that the more information we can get on a patient, the better we can do in terms of treating them. Sure. That, that makes sense. So let's say someone comes in, their terrain is a mess, right? Mm -hmm. They've got high levels of inflammation. Mm -hmm. You know, on, on a really basic level, and, and you know, I'm not asking for medical advice here, yep. because it, it's our intent here to inform and to educate. Right. But if somebody wants to change up their diet, maybe their joints hurt, maybe they've gotten uh, a test back from their regular allopathic doctor and they did test for C-reactive protein and, and, you know, it looks like they've got some issues. What can you do with your diet? What can you do with your lifestyle that'll help you to be less inflammatory? Really good question. So it's important to note here that the elephant in the living room is sleep, diet, exercise, stress management. And we all kind of know that and it's easy and it's free. It doesn't require going out and buying any supplements necessarily. Right. But you know, one of the things I found that's really interesting, and you may have seen this in your practice too, people come in and they go, you know, I eat pretty healthy. Right. And so my next question is usually, so tell me what a healthy diet is. Right. <laughs> right. Right. Yeah. Tell me what you're eating. Sure. But kind of focusing in on those things and making sure those are as clean as possible is going to really clean up the 80% of what's going on with someone. So what's your idea of a good, clean, anti-inflammatory diet? 
I've been inspired by a lot of dietary theorists through the years. I've been kind of looking at this for over 20 years now, and I change all the time, and it doesn't stay consistent. The basic diet that I kind of promote to my patients has been inspired a lot by Terry Walls. I'm not sure if you're familiar with her. Yes, I am. Didn't she have MS or something like that? Terry Walls is a great story. She's got a great YouTube video that it's really worthwhile watching. It's about a 20-minute video. If you just Google WA. HLS, I believe, and YouTube, you'll find it. She also just published uh, her second book called The Walls Diet, which I have, but I haven't read yet. I'll get that information onto the show notes page so that people can just click right over to it. It's a great talk. I, everybody should watch The Walls Diet. So I'm going to tell you her story really quickly because it's so amazing. Terry's a physician. She's on staff at the University of Iowa, and she got MS. And she basically started going downhill and realized that the allopath, and she, I believe she was a conventional MD at the time, teaching medical students. And she realized that the treatments that they had for her weren't working. So she basically went out and did her own research and went into PubMed and stayed up late at nights looking at, well, what can I do for myself to help myself out? And what she came to realize is that she came to the basis that she, she felt that MS is really a mitochondrial Im imbalance, dysfunction. And what can we do to improve our mitochondria? So, Right. That's the energy centers of the body. That's right. The energy centers of the body are out of whack, which there's a whole theory that that happens with cancer as well that we might want to talk about later. And so she said, what can we do about this? And she came up with a certain diet for herself. And basically, you know, it wasn't rock and science. It was a lot of fruits and vegetables. I mean, she, she's recommending three cups a day of green leafy vegetables, three cups a day of sulfur-rich vegetables. Sulfur-rich veggies are things in the alum family like, like uh, onions and garlic and eggs. Um, and also kale, the brassicas, Yum. and three cups a day of colorful fruits and vegetables like dark berries, also organ meat, and sea veggies. Oh, sea veggies, delicious. Did you have those when you were in China? Uh, sure, yeah. I like sea uh, yeah. I'm okay uh, with sea veggies. I like sea veggies. Really? Yeah. You had, you had the sea cucumber? I don't remember if I had the sea cucumber or not. It was a while ago since I was there, but I, you know, you can't get out of China without having seaweed, right? It's, it's the law. Okay, okay, see, yeah, okay, that's right. Seaweed is a is sea vegetable. Yeah. And some of it is delicious. Yeah, yeah. Okay, I'm, I'm with you on that. Yeah. I was thinking about those sea cucumbers. <laughs> I don't remember them. Uh, My teacher in Taiwan loved the, anytime we go out for dinner, sea cucumbers are always showing up. Right. And you had to eat them then, right? Um, yeah, pretty much. <laughs> so Terry started going on this really strict diet. I don't even think she was taking nutritional supplements at this time, or if she was, it was a small part of what she was doing. And she was wheelchair bound and she now rides her bike to work. So it's an amazing story. She's doing research now with other MS patients. And so that's the basic diet I recommend to myself, a new, what's called a nutrient-dense diet. So that means really having a good amount every day of a wide variety of fruits and vegetables. And we know this. We all know this. Fruits and veggies, fruits and veggies. But that's where all our antioxidants, you know, the, these phenolic-rich compounds and spices, herbs and spices, they're, they're incredible for, you know, the nutrient value that they have. Speaking of herbs and spices, I don't want to get you sidetracked. So, you know, we can come back to whatever we need to. What about turmeric? Turmeric. Turmeric is a great one. And there's quite a bit of research going on with turmeric. The big researcher for that is a guy named Dr. Agarwal. Dr. Agarwal is at MD Anderson, which is a major cancer center in Houston, Texas. He's done a lot of research on turmeric and curcumin. And, uh, you know, it's sort of the granddaddy of what I call multitasking herbs. These are herbs that have many different properties to them. It's a major anti-inflammatory. It inhibits uh, an inflammatory cytokine called NF-kappa-beta, which is on the top of the inflammation cascade. 
really shows up a lot with cancer, that there's upregulated NF-kappa-beta. Curcumin does an amazing job of inhibiting it. Um, it's also an amazing antioxidant. It's neuroprotective. It's uh, hepatic or liver protective. It's cardioprotective. Agarwal has uh, done some really great research showing that it it's an amazingly smart plant in terms of how, from a cancer perspective, all the pathways the cancer can use that it blocks. I mean, he's got this amazing chart with about 50 different pathways, transcription factors and growth factors and all these oncogenes where curcumin works to actually inhibit cancer. There's about eight human trials going on right now using up to eight grams a day of curcumin. And they have a th- over 1,000 patients at MD Anderson right now on uh, curcumin which is the extract from turmeric. Right. There's some debate about, you know, most of the research is on curcumin, which is the extract from, from turmeric, and there's some debate as to whether we might be missing the boat a little bit by just taking this extract out of it, and we may get better results if we use the whole plant, even though it's going to be a lower level of this active ingredient. So what I try to do in my formulas is I'll use curcumin mostly, but then I'll throw a little turmeric in with it, so I'll get the, the benefits of the whole plant with it. Well, this kind of gets back to our Chinese medicine thinking, that we're not looking for one specific ingredient. Again, we're looking to cultivate that terrain. We're not looking to kill one weed. We're not looking to feed one plant. We're looking to harmonize the entire ecosystem. Right. And these plants, they're just smart. You know, drugs tend to work with one eye trying to do just one thing, and they tend to have a lot of side effects. And these herbs, like the biggies, like curcumin and green tea and resveratrol, which have all these different properties, they just seem to have a wisdom to them about how to best create homeostasis in the the body. You know, this this is an interesting thing. It seems to me that our current way of looking at the body, especially through the lens of allopathic medicine, is basically that we don't trust the body. Right. We don't trust the body's wisdom. We don't trust the body's innate ability to heal itself. And with some of these other methods, the Chinese medicine I practice, the functional medicine and Chinese medicine that you practice too, for that matter, we actually consider the substance we use to have a kind of intelligence about them. I like the word that you used, intelligence, that they have a way of working at things from multiple angles. And that we're actually working with nature and surprisingly enough, opening up the possibility that nature even wants to work with us. Right. Yeah, you're right. It's, it's, it's great. It's beautiful and it comes together so beautifully and uh, it's really great to practice that way. It is. Now, we're just talking about some of the ways that people can eat their way into a, into a better balance. I was having a discussion this morning with the missus over breakfast. Uh-huh. <laughs> and oh man, does she put on a breakfast. Uh-huh. <laughs> Which reminds me, I, wa- I want to ask you in a little bit about the good, well, actually I want to ask you right now about the good fats because we have been eating fat like no one's business. Yeah, lately. yeah. I'm getting that from your blog. I'm getting that Oh sense. yeah. Yeah. I mean, a, a hot buttered cocoa latte in the morning is just a piece of delight and really, it, it gives me a really nice energy as well. Okay. So fats. Is the Walls diet and and the work that you're doing, are you suggesting fats to people? And if so, which ones? Yeah, absolutely. And she's not afraid of fat and saturated fat in her diet. And she's having a lot. I mean, she's recommending organ meats, which, you know, have a fair amount of saturated fat in them. The fat thing is really, really interesting. And, uh, you know, I went through a phase where I was pretty paleo-esque in terms of what I was recommending to people. And I still sort of think that basis of that diet's a really good one. And what's the basis of that diet? I mean, it's still, the paleo diet's still a plant-based diet, you know, and the, the studies Lauren Cordain's done 
with folks, they were having an enormous amount of produce every day. So I think people miss the point on the paleo diet and say it's this fat diet. Well, yeah, they don't skimp on fats, but the basis of that diet is to have a large amount of produce. So, you know, three cups a day, green leafy, sulfur-rich, colorful fruits and vegetables. But then fat's essential too. You know, that's why they're called essential fatty acids. So we need to get them from our diet. I think that saturated fats have gotten a bad rap. I think in the large majority of folks, they're healthy fats in moderation. I do think genetics plays a big piece of the whole diet part and the fat part of it. And we're going to find out a lot more about that in the next 10 years. We just started using a company that does a genetic analysis on patients and comes back with a recommendation on what's their best diet. For me, it came back low fat. And I actually lost weight on a low fat diet after being paleo for a long time and not being able to lose weight. So for me, for my specific genotype, I don't think doing a very high fat diet works for me. For some patients, it does. So a lot depends on their genotype. There's also a test that we do routinely on every patient who comes in called um, apolipoprotein E test. And that's a genetic lipoprotein test. You can get one of three variants from each parent, a two or a three or a four. And the folks who come back with a four have a much higher rate of Alzheimer's disease and cardiovascular disease, and they do not do well on saturated fat. So that's the only time I'm going to recommend to somebody to limit their saturated fat and that should actually help their lipids come down and and decrease their chances of Alzheimer's and cardiovascular disease if they have one or two fours from that APOE gene. But for anybody else who has the configurations of two, three, I tend to put them on a low, and and I still want the fours on a low glycemic diet. I want everybody Mm -hmm. on a low glycemic diet, meaning be careful with refined carbohydrates. So what's refined carbohydrates? Any sort of flour is a refined carbohydrate. Once you take that grain and run it through a grinder, it's, it's refined. We don't have to be that strict with everyone. Some people can have some flour products, but uh, certainly we want to minimize white carbohydrate sources, you know, keep flour products to a minimum and certainly minimize sugar and sweets in their diet. Did I answer your fats question? Uh, we're starting to get around it a we're, little yeah, bit. We're getting around it a little bit. We're uh, getting around it a little bit. Okay. So the big thing that I hear about fats, and I think that our listeners probably do too, there's this uh, omega-3, which is supposed to be really great. And there's this omega-6. Right. Talk to us about those. Right. So they're both essential fatty acids. We need to have both of them in our diet. The problem we've gotten into is that we kind of stuff ourselves with omega-6s because they're poly- They're both polyunsaturated fats. And something I want to say about polyunsaturated fats, including omega-3s, means that they're unstable fats, means they can oxidize really, really easily and cause free radical damage. And that's a big issue. That's a big issue. known as And a causer of cancer. And a causer of cancer. Exactly. Yeah. People need to note that. People need to note that with omega-3s too. Omega-3s are unstable. They can break down easily, whereas saturated fat's incredibly stable. That's one of the beauties of saturated fat, that you can cook it at high heat usually and that it's very stable. It's not going to break down. And you down. can keep it a long time too, you can't you? can keep it a long time. It's stable at room you can temperature. Keep that lard. How long can you keep a nice bucket of lard for? I would... <laughs> I'm assuming years. I don't think that's, that's stable stuff. But the problem we've gotten ourselves into is that we we tend to eat a lot of vegetable oils and very little uh, omega-3s. Omega-3s tend to come, the, the vegetarian sources are things like flax and walnuts and chia. And the, the animal sources tend to be fatty fish. Or grass-fed beef, right? Grass-fed beef, you're going to get some from as well. That's right. Salmon of the plains. Right. Exactly. Well said. What we try to do is we just try to shift the ratio. The ideal ratio is probably about a four to one omega-6 to omega-3 ratio. The average American's at about a 25 to one ratio. Holy smokes. Yeah. 
Yeah, it's gotten a little out of out of control. I mean, we you know vegetable oils are cheap and they go into everything, and so yeah. you know. Soy well, and oil. you know the other thing about the the vegetable oils, for decades we were told these are healthy. Right. Right. It's kind of hard to break that thinking. The whole cholesterol theory. That's a that's a whole that's a whole <laughs> another topic. It's a good. Topic that's another to, ball to, of wax. To we'll, we'll get into that in a different show. Yeah. Huh? Yeah. And there's still a contingent of people who who are under the impression that they're doing some, themselves a, a favor from a cardiovascular disease perspective by stuffing themselves full of omega sixes. Not really true. So you want to try to shift that ratio. Most people have a hard time getting omega threes in their diet. The vegetarian sources of omega threes don't convert particularly well into the downstream nutrients that we need, which are called EPA and DHA, whereas Fish oil goes there directly, so you don't need an enzyme to convert it. So, and being that most people don't get enough salmon and sardines and mackerel in their diet, that's one of the things Salmon, I sardines, and mackerel. So that sounds like a good breakfast. Yeah. We just don't do it that much, but it, it is a good breakfast. And then you need to be careful about w the sources. You know, our waters are completely toxic now, so all of our fish are toxic to one degree or another, so you have to do your best options. And tuna is also high on omega-3s too, but it's got a lot of mercury in it. You know, and our best options are things like Pacific wild salmon, not farm-raised salmon, which is been shown to have a lot of toxins in it, but it gets really expensive, as, as you know, to get good quality salmon. So it's yep. hard for a especially lot of Especially here in the Midwest. Especially outside of the West. And even on the West Coast, it's really expensive for me to buy salmon here in, in Washington. You know, I do put omega-3 fish oil as one of the supplements I feel everybody should be taking. Um, I used to make the across-the-board recommendation that everyone should take it. With the caveat now, I say you need to take it with antioxidants. You need to either have a really high, rich diet in antioxidants or take supplemental antioxidants because it can be oxidative. I don't see it as a free lunch and just good across the board. If there's a bit of rancidity to it, is that a word, rancidity? Yeah. It's a bit rancid. Yeah. yeah. Okay. Then you need to protect yourself with antioxidants. Yeah. And you can take too much of it. You know, it can have some downsides of taking too much of it. So I tend to like cod liver oil. I see cod liver oil as more of a whole food. I'm a bit of a whole food junkie. Cod liver oil gives you naturally occurring vitamin A and vitamin D in it. Um, there's one company that makes uh, fermented cod liver oil that a lot of people are really into that I take also. And then my teacher, Donnie Yance, who's uh, a fabulous nutritionist and herbalist specializing in oncology, he has a company called Natura. And he makes a great product called uh, Beyond Essential Fats, which he takes um, a high dose of fish oil and he adds sea buckthorn oil to it and he adds pine seed oil to it. So he gets GLA, gamma-lenolytic acid, which is another essential fat that most people don't get in their diet that has anti-inflammatory properties. And the sea buckthorn oil is really, really rich in carotenoids. So it gives you a lot of those antioxidants that are going to help to protect that from rancidity and some of the concerns I have with omega-3s. Sounds brilliant. Mm -hmm. Yeah, great product. It's a fabulous product. It's beyond essential fats. Beyond essential fats, <laughs> and we need those essential fats. So we do. Here was the question from breakfast this morning, which is what, what was breakfast, by the way? Oh, breakfast this morning. Well, we had the hot buttered cocoa latte, uh -huh. and then uh, Tracy makes these little flatbread things that are basically made out of uh, almond meal and egg. Uh -huh. So there's little flatbread things, and then uh, I slather it with uh, a bunch of butter, grass fed butter. And then I put whatever I want on top of it. Today's topping was this sort of, uh, uh, not papaya. We had a little papaya on the side. It was like an avocado pesto. Avocado and these, you know, um, I think of those parsley and some basil and, you know, these rich, tasty green things all mashed up together. And I uh, just slid that on top of the uh, flatbread. Are you doing the, uh, the the medium chain triglycerides in your coffee? Oh, my God, yes. Yeah, we throw coconut oil in there. Hence the okay. name hot buttered cocoa latte. Okay. 
You haven't gone for the bulletproof medium chain triglyceride oil yet, huh? Well, you know, coconut oil is like 80% medium chain triglycerides. Why should I go spend a bunch more money? Well, it depends if you believe his marketing or not. I mean, he claims that the high octane brain one is 18 times more potent than just straight coconut oil, but it may just be marketing. I don't know. You know, I don't know either. I know this. <laughs> the coconut oil is delicious. Yeah. I'm kind of an 80-20 guy for the most part. Uh-huh. Okay. So if it's going to get me, you know, most of the way there, I could do an experiment, but yeah, for now, I'm probably not going to. Yeah. All right. So that so that was breakfast. And during breakfast. Sounds good. Yeah, it was delicious. Oh, my God. We eat so well here. She takes such good care of me. Nice. But over breakfast, we were having the discussion of, well, really, even though we don't do as much stir frying as we used to, she's like, what should I use? I mean, we've given up the vegetable oils, all right? They're on the no-fly list. And we've been using coconut oil. Yeah. We're looking at getting a hold of some lard or some tallow. Uh, we use ghee. That's also delicious. Folks that want to stir fry stuff up at a high heat, what should we use? Yeah, you know, so uh, m- my favorites are coconut oil. And the coconut oil is kind of interesting. Some of them say that they're only for medium high heat. And Chris Cresser was the first person who addressed this. And I'm blanking on what there's a certain type of coconut oil that he says is specific for high heat and one that's not. And I forgot what the term is. Because you'll notice on some of the coconut oils, when they list what heat it is, they don't say for high heat. But for the most part, it's a good, stable, high heat oil. The other one I'm liking these days is red palm oil. Ah. Uh-huh. Yeah, uh, really nice and really rich in carotenoids. You just—it's really—it stains the counter. It's kind of—it's got a lot of just like the turmeric does. Just like the turmeric, yeah, yeah, it's got some major antioxidant activity in there. So that's a really nice one too. And you know, I just read an article off of Chris Cresser's blog recently where. Um, he made an argument that olive oil is actually a stable high heat oil and that it's not true that since it's a medium chain triglyceride and that it smokes that it's not. He claims that there's so many phytonutrients and antioxidants in there. He actually thinks it's okay for high heat. I haven't gotten to the point where I'm using it, but I thought it was an interesting perspective. Yeah. Well, I've heard some stuff too about olive oil lately. I don't know if it's rumor, you know, stuff off the internet that actually a lot of it is kind of tainted. It's not pure olive oil. It's because of the way that, uh, labeling is in the United States, they can mix stuff in that's not olive oil with olive oil and sell it as olive oil. Have you heard about this? You know, I, I vaguely remember reading about it and I don't have much knowledge about it. All right. Me neither. Well, we'll have to go find an olive oil expert for this. But uh, okay. So the red palm oil <laughs> mm-hmm. and uh, coconut oil, ghee, anything else that you really like? No, those are the main ones we that's use. It. And they're um, delicious. And they're great. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, coconut oil is awesome, yeah. Yeah. Hope you're enjoying the show. I'd love to know about what topics are of interest to you. If you have a health concern, or if you want to know specifics about how acupuncture can help to promote vibrant well-being, visit the website at www.everydayacupuncturepodcast.com and send an email. What's your take on fermented foods? Really, really wise idea to incorporate fermented foods in your diet. With the one caveat that there's a, there's a segment of the population that's histamine intolerant. And if you do have histamine intolerance, which is tricky to find out without doing a test, you're going to want to avoid them. But 
keeping the histamine intolerant folks aside, the large majority of the population, it's a great thing to integrate into your diet because they're really rich in bacteria that your body uses and they're primarily for intestinal health. But we're finding out that probiotics are necessary all over the body, you know, for all sorts of diseases. There's a link with cancer and probiotics. There's a link with mental health and probiotics. I hear there's, there's links with mood and probiotics and even, yep. even being obese or thin. Yeah, it's great. So, you know, I, I actually think people should take probiotics, but but we can't replicate what's going on in the body. And he, eating fermented foods like sauerkraut that are naturally fermented and not pasteurized um, will give you the actual substrate the body needs to make the right flora mix in the intestine. So I think people should have a, a forkful of something like probiotics almost with every meal as much as they can to, to get fermented foods in the diet. Is there a traditional culture out there that doesn't have some sort of a fermented food that they eat? Not that I know of, and it's a, it's really wise. And I think we've, uh, except for, you know, that most people eat yogurt, we really don't have fermented foods in our diet on a regular basis. And it's something that I think is really, really important. Yeah. Well, and the yogurt is so packed with sugar for the most part here. Yep. That's kind of a problem. Speaking of sugar. Yep. I've been on this kind of low carb, high fat thing lately. I'm doing a little experiment on myself, on my own white mouse on this ketogenic diet. What's the connection between sugar and cancer? Or what are some of the connections? I, I, I might be opening up a can of worms here. Cancer loves sugar. There's really not a debate about this. It's really, really clear. I don't think the conventional oncology community argues this. Um, the way a PET scan works is they put glucose into the body and cancer cells go to the glucose and they're able to image it that way. So they're not arguing that cancer cells don't go after sugar. There's really no debate about this. It's really a slam dunk. Cancer likes is a, is a glycolytic process. Cancer also, you know, sugar upregulates insulin and insulin feeds cancer. We know this. Insulin, insulin like, also feeds cancer. I didn't know that. I know that it causes us to store fat. Yeah, it causes us to store fat, but it also upregulates something called insulin-like growth factor. And we know there are cancer, insulin-like growth factors are canceling, signaling, promotes cancer. It's in the medical literature. This isn't conjecture. So I think it's a big deal. And there's numerous studies that show this as well. There was a study in 2007 that was published. Um, I don't remember where it was published. They looked at 65,000 people over 13 years, and there was a 26% increase in cancer in the group that had the highest sugar in their diet and the highest blood sugar levels. It's a really big deal. Being on a low glycemic diet is a very, very high priority for somebody who wants to be in optimal health, somebody who's concerned about cardiovascular disease, obviously about diabetes and cancer too. We have some strategies. We actually recommend that people um, fast or eat really, really lightly the day of chemotherapy because, and there's data on this too, in, uh, in vivo data, which is in, in, not in humans, but in mice, showing that, that the body can do okay without having sugar for a day or two or three, but cancer cells really struggle. That's their main source. They're, they're really gobbling up sugar in order to keep going. So if we take that out of the picture, on days of chemotherapy, it's like a double whammy. You're hitting them with the chemotherapy and you're, and you're starving them at the, same, at the same, time. same time. Yeah. So there's some data that says people have less side effects from chemo and also better outcomes. That's really interesting. So the thing that's, to me, fascinating about our bodies is that we're, we're really basically dual burners. We can burn sugar for fuel. We can burn fat. We can burn ketone bodies from fat. Right. 
But it sounds like cancer just burns sugar. It can't really burn the energy that comes from fat. Yeah, so uh, this is a really uh, interesting point. Um, this is originally was uh, Otto Warburg was a scientist who won the Nobel Prize in 1931 for coming up with this theory that said, you know, the conventional viewpoint is that cancer is due to genetic mutations that cause cancer. And he basically came out and said, no, I don't, that's not really true, that it's due to mitochondrial damage. There's some process that damages the mitochondria, which is the energy pathways of the cell, probably oxidative stress being a big one, whereas why we want to have a high antioxidant diet. And that causes DNA mutations and mitochondrial cell damage. And that enables the cancer cells to utilize a different energetic pathway, a very inefficient, anaerobic, not using oxygen pathway, which is called lactic fermentation. And lactic fermentation is fed by sugar. It's sugar-driven. Since that time, you know, in the past couple of years, this theory's gotten really popular. A guy at Boston College named Tom Seafried and another guy named Diagostino have, uh, Seafried wrote a, a huge book on the metabolic theory of cancer saying that, you know, this is really what, what's causing cancer, not th these genetic malformations that using an alternate energy pathway, like a ketogenic diet, which would promote fat burning rather than sugar burning, is going to starve the cancer cells. It's exciting stuff, and there's some good data. There's some, there's some anecdotal data, particularly with brain cancers, because the brain takes up so much glucose. So I particularly think about it for, for brain cancers. What we have found out, though, is that while this theory is great, and we need to keep going down this path in terms of doing research, it's not totally correct. Cancer cells can utilize an aerobic pathway as well. They're not strictly going to feed on an anaerobic pathway. They can utilize both pathways. If it was as easy as just blocking off that anaerobic pathway, it, we'd the see problem would be being, solved. The problem would be solved. It's not quite that easy, but it's a piece of the puzzle. Yeah, and I didn't mean to suggest that that this thing is going to cure cancer. It's just it's one of the aspects of the environment. You know, back to yeah. terrain. Right. Totally. And it's, uh, it's worth considering. So I don't typically recommend a strict ketogenic diet unless patients want to do it or unless I'm seeing markers that make me think about it. One of the markers that we look for is something called LDH, lactodehydrogenase. And if that's elevated, that's indicating that there's a lactic fermentation process going on in the body. So if I see that with someone who has cancer or had cancer, that's concerning me. And, uh, you know, I have a patient right now who's at a high risk of recurrence, a young woman who had breast cancer, and she keeps having elevated LDH levels. So we had a conversation about she might want to do a ketogenic diet. With folks who've had brain cancer, really smart idea to be on a ketogenic diet. Mm -hmm. You mentioned that fasting the day of chemo might be useful. I've been hearing a bit lately about intermittent fasting just in general as, as kind of a tune-up for the metabolism. Yeah, I like it. Um, I do it myself. Um, I oftentimes will skip breakfast, which, you know, we're told never to do, but that seems to work for me. So I'll oftentimes do just two meals a day and eat in, say, an eight-hour window. And it works for some people. It doesn't work for everybody. Um, you know, folks who tend to have hypoglycemia don't do that well on, a, on intermittent fasting, but other folks it works really, really well on. And folks who have what's called leptin resistance, um, there's some debate about this, but you know, I've seen good results for folks who have leptin or insulin resistance, which is like prediabetes, doing really well on a on a intermittent fasting of really shortening the time period in which they're eating to, you know, a, a short window of the day, usually six to seven to eight hours out of a 24-hour period to show some really beneficial results. You know, it, it's fascinating that, and again, we get this from Chinese medicine, and, and it's so exciting to me to see this showing up in, in this other form of medicine that you're working with, that we're also individual. 
Right. You know, by and large, our Western point of view is, hey, there's this bell curve and we can get most of the people, you know, within one or two deviations. And let's just focus our attention there. But, you know, really, we're, we're all so incredibly different. Yep. It's, it's really impossible. I mean, if you really want to get down to living a healthy life and you, if you really want to get down to getting treated for whatever you've got, one size really doesn't fit all. That's right. And with all the genetic testing that's coming out now that we mapped out the genome, it's getting really exciting. You know, uh, the, you know, we recommend to most of our patients that they do a 23andMe test, gene test, and that, and we just want to look at the raw data. And from the raw data, we can get really, really interesting analysis on what their blueprint looks like. It gets kind of tricky to then to figure out what, how those genes are going to express, but it gives us an idea of what their blueprint looks like and what they're likely to have issues with. So it's really putting that together with other testing that looks at the phenotype, which is how the genes are expressing. We really get a great picture sometimes when we can put all those tests together. Right. Now, there's, there's talk of actually being able to sort of upregulate or downregulate certain genes. Mm-hmm. Talk to us a bit about that. We used to think that that it, that it was set. Your, your genetic code, your DNA was just set. There was nothing you can do about it. And what we've uh, come to learn is that's not true, that we can affect how the DNA expresses. We can't actually change the DNA, but we can ex- affect how it expresses based on things like diet and lifestyle and nutrition, t- based on sleep and how we eat and how we exercise can help those DNA to express in a good way or to help those DNA to express in, a, in an aberrant way that could be cancer promoting. So there's lots of phytochemicals like curcumin, which we just talked about, green tea, isothiocyanates, which are in cruciferous vegetables, which can have a positive effect on DNA expression. There was a great article in the New York Times this week that a study was just published showing for the first time, they theorized this, but for the first time, they have proof positive in a really well-designed trial that exercise changes the mitochondria via something called methylation in a positive way, that you can affect DNA expression in the mitochondria from exercise in a positive way. Okay. So this this leads me to the question, what kind of exercise? Is plugging in the earbuds, you know, and grabbing a book and stepping on a treadmill going to help? or Or is there something else that we should be thinking about? Yeah, you know, this is another place where I think genetics gives us some good information, and there's a bunch of labs out there now doing analysis saying what the best type of exercise people should be doing is. We're using one called Pathway Genomics, and we're just starting to use them, so I don't have a lot of data on it yet. It's really interesting to get back a report saying, based on your genes, this is the optimal exercise plan for you. It may be right, it may be wrong, but I really am attracted to that information. In, in lieu of that, in general, I'd say the answer is do anything. <laughs> Something's better than nothing. Move. Something is better than nothing, and I wouldn't get too caught up in what that exercise looks like. And if you want to really go for it, you know, I, I really like Mark Sasson's theories on exercise, which is, an, which is a combination of high-intensity interval training, weight training, and walking. So to, to incorporate all three of those into how you exercise. Right. Yeah, I remember some years ago uh, – we were talking about the interval training yeah, and, uh, and just how useful that is for us. I think it's great. And it's one of the best ways to, uh, you know, doing anaerobic exercise is one of the best ways to increase uh, muscle mass. Um, so I think it's a great way to, to exercise. And, and I think, you know, I think there's benefit to doing cardiovascular 
you know, training, but I, I think in some ways it got overblown. And I think there's some other methods of exercise that are just as good, if not better. And sort of doing cross training and incorporating the various ones in is optimal. David, I've heard some uh, things about copper lately, that there are some uh, issues with having too much copper in the system and it, it can cause problems. Yeah. First of all, where's it coming from? Secondly, what kind of mischief does it cause metabolically? And uh, thirdly, how do we get rid of it? Where it comes from, uh, pipes, copper pipes, people get exposure from that, and diet. And the biggies in the diet are uh, shellfish, organ meat, and chocolate, some nuts. You know, the things, uh, zinc and copper compete with each other. So, so one of the things you can do to help to keep your copper levels in an optimal range is to make sure you have a lot of zinc in your diet. Ah. And where do you get zinc from? What kind of uh, foods would provide us with that? Shellfish is also high in zinc, and I believe that you'll get them from a plant-rich diet as well as uh, beef is really high in zinc. We eat a lot of grass-fed beef here in St. Louis. Oysters. Oysters are high in zinc. Oysters too. Okay, good. The deal with copper is that cancer cells need copper in order to grow. Once, and there was a bunch of trials that went on at the University of Michigan, a guy named George Brewer, about 10, 15 years ago, and he showed this, and it's very, very clear. I don't, I don't, think, I don't think there's a debate about this. Cancer cells, as they're beginning to form to build their vascular architecture, something called angiogenesis, they, it's copper-dependent. Cancer cells can't grow at the initial stages without having copper. So the theory is that if you inhibit copper from the body, that the cancer cells can't grow. So the trials they did were on people who had active cancer or animals who had active cancer, and the, the results were very mixed. And basically, the, the thing got dropped, and everyone said, well, this was a nice idea, but it didn't go anyplace. There were a few folks who held the flag and went forward with it and said, you know, well, wait a minute. Um, maybe we missed the boat here. Maybe this isn't a great therapy if someone has an active cancer because the, cop the cancer cells can use other mechanisms besides the copper-dependent ones to, to, to work around this. But what if we take somebody who has what's called no evidence of disease, it's, no, it's called NED in, in oncology circles, but has a really high risk of recurrence because they probably have micrometastasis that we can't see. What if we inhibit their copper then? Then the cancer cells can't grow because they're so small. And this is where this research is so exciting right now. So one of my mentors is an oncologist named Dwight McKee, um, and he's an integrative oncologist. He's, not, he's retired now. He, he consults with other physicians. He has a sample size of over 20 stage four patients who, if they met the criteria of going on copper chelation with a, with a compounded drug called tetrathiomolybdate, um, getting their copper levels down to a certain level, holding them there for three to four months without having a recurrence and staying on it for three years, that sample group of over 20 patients now, no one's had a recurrence. He's got one woman who's 13 years out. Now, now think about this. These are stage four patients. Stage four patients are considered statistically will have a, a recurrence of their cancer within typically a few years. So the data he has is really impressive. And we had a study published in 2013 in the Annals of Oncology. The, uh, Linda Vidot at Cornell's Wild Cancer Center took a bunch of triple negative breast cancer patients, all stage threes and stage fours, no evidence of disease, put them on tetrathiomolybdate, published the data. The data was really impressive. And the big thing they got, and they're still following these women, they're going to keep publishing because the data was impressive. But the big thing they got out of that studies was that it showed that that uh, there was clearly uh, an inhibition of uh, types of cells called EPCs and HPCs. And EPCs and HPCs, what they do is they 
travel microscopically through the bloodstream and they kind of drop a little popcorn trail to distant organs for the cancers to go. That study showed very clearly that copper chelation stop inhibited that process from happening. So it's really exciting. And you know, we recommend this to any of our patients who get to that place of, well, you have no evidence of disease now, but you have a, a fairly high in- likelihood of recurrence. This is the number one treatment that we're, that we're recommending to them. That, that is exciting. Yeah. What about detox? You know, a lot of times our systems get sick because there's an overload of something. I have patients coming in all the time saying, how can I detox my system? What are your thoughts on this? Um, so I, my thoughts are that we are all, we're all exposed to toxins. We live in a really toxic world and there's no avoiding this. Some people's bodies are better at discharging it than others. But I think everybody, it's a good idea for everybody to be doing some sort of de- uh, conscious detoxification work. Does that mean that, that folks have to take some kind of uh, herbs that make them poop their brains out for a day? Um, you know, <laughs> we don't like to put it that way. Well, I mean, a lot of people think that's detox. Yeah, I, I don't think that's necessary. In our clinic, every spring, we'll do a two or three week detox with folks. And I like to do that for myself. And that includes a special diet and um, some supplements. We use the standard process products. The ah, that's a good pro- one, isn't it? Protocol. Yeah. yeah, I like it. I think it's yeah. great. I kind of change it a little bit and use some other products, not all their products, but I think it's a good one. You don't have to do that one. There's other ones you could do, but you know, taking in nutrients that encourage liver phase two and phase two detoxification, encourage colon detoxification is probably a smart move for people to do once or twice a year. And the other thing that I think is just incredibly helpful is to do saunas. Saunas, you know, to promote sweating have been shown to be incredibly healing, particularly for people who've been exposed to chemicals, who have a, who have a high exposure to chemicals, who have a high exposure to heavy metals. It's a great way of getting that stuff out of the body or just on regular maintenance to get in there regularly to, 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 to help sweat, sweat out. out the stuff that we're, we're all exposed. You know, none of us can avoid this. What about steam baths? Same effect? Yeah, I don't don't know as much about steam baths. Most of the stuff I've been seeing is on far-infrared saunas with a lower heat. Yeah. Okay, talk to us a little bit about this far-infrared stuff. So the far-infrared saunas uh, supposedly use a lower heat anywhere from like 125 to 145 degrees, but supposedly you're able to get into the cells deeper and detox deeper than using a traditional sauna, which is a much higher heat. I think you're probably okay with either one. I don't think it matters all that much. I live in a community here that we we bought a communal sauna. We were in it last night. I, I think it's one of the best things I can do for myself. If I can get in there once, twice a week, I feel, you know, I think it's one of the best things you can do for yourself. And then someone who has multiple chemical sensitivities or the like, they really need to do it. They're, you know, they're, mm. they're folks who are not able, their pathways of detoxification are not working well. So we have to work on helping to open those up and move those. They tend to get really sick when you do that. So they're tricky to work with, but, but getting their chemicals out, it ha- they got to get them out. And the sauna is the best way to do it. David, this has been great. My head is spinning a little bit with all this information. <laughs> and so I'm, I'm looking forward to uh, going through this and editing it and, uh, because there's a ton of notes here and resources that I'll be able to put on the show notes page. That way people can go directly to it. This is just amazing stuff. And, and I thank you so much for your time today. 
Any last words for our listeners before we sign off? Yeah, you know, it's uh, if you have the opportunity to find a, a medical provider who does functional medicine and can do uh, advanced lab testing for you to look deeper, get the flashlight out, look around for places that may be out of balance so that those can be fixed before there's a problem, that, in my opinion, is uh, optimal medical care. And uh, unfortunately, most of the allopathic community doesn't practice that way. And, and those folks are out there. So if you can find somebody like that, uh, really go for it. David, this sounds like the ultimate in preventative medicine. I think it's great for preventative medicine, yeah. Yeah, and for treating illness. Quick question, do you guys do at-distance work? Could somebody uh, work with you at a distance uh, yeah. doing this stuff? So we can do some Skype work, but we need to see people in the office typically the first time. Okay. But after that, we can do some Skype work after that, and we want to see people like once a year. All right, got that. I'm not going to ask for your website because it's just – actually, I am going to ask for your website. Or a way of contacting you guys, and then we'll have it on the show notes as well. So my personal website is uh, david-learner, L-E-R-N-E-R dot com, and uh, where I work with Dr. Hirsch at the Hirsch Center for Integrative Medicine, it's drevan.com, and doctor spelled out. And then where I do acupuncture and Chinese medicine is heartofwellness.org. All right. That's great. David, thanks again so much for being on the show. You always blow my mind with how much you know and how excited you get me with medicine. Thank you so much, Michael. It was a pleasure. I really enjoyed it, and I really appreciate you, uh, you inviting me on it. It was great. I hope it's helpful for folks. We'll have you back again sometime to talk about cholesterol. Cool. I hope you enjoyed this episode of Everyday Acupuncture. If so, please take a moment click on the iTunes review button and leave a review of the show. And be sure to tune in again next week.